Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. This show is all about sharing inspiration, uplifting stories, and practical career advice from innovative, original thinking, and pioneering women from around the world. You can find us here every second week, or why not sign up at don'tstopusnow.co so you never miss a show. Plus, you'd make our day if you could rate or review us. It really gives us a boost in more ways than one. It sure does. Now it's time for this week's show. Hello and welcome to a very special episode. Indeed. We are super excited to share today an exclusive conversation with Australia's head of cybersecurity, Abigail Bradshaw. Abby is head of the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, which is part of the larger foreign intelligence agency known as the Australian Signals Directorate. Now, Abby describes her agency's job as, wait for it, revealing other nations and foreign crime syndicates' secrets while protecting our own. You know, I have to say, I always wanted to be a spy when I was little. Think Agent 99, if you're old enough to remember that show, Get Smart, listeners. So I'm just bursting with excitement to share this conversation with our listeners. I can see that. And listeners, you should have seen Greta when she arrived at the agency's headquarters in Canberra the other week. She was literally beside herself. Well, you have to admit, I think we were super privileged to be granted this conversation with Abby. I mean, how often do you hear a senior foreign intelligence executive on a podcast? Not often. Exactly. Now, in this episode, you'll hear how Abigail's career journey took her from being a lawyer in the Navy to foreign intelligence, why Abby realized she had to change her leadership style significantly when she started her current role, and her seriously informed tips of how we can all protect ourselves from cybercrime. Super important. This is such a special episode, so synchronize watches, put your phones on silent, and enjoy this conversation with the dynamic and patriotic Abigail Bradshaw. Abby Bradshaw, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Hey, thanks. And please, it's one of my favourite um, Freddie Mercury tracks, by the way. <laughs> Don't stop. It's, my, it's my drive to work on a day where I need pumping up songs. So oh, that's great. Yeah. We uh, loved the song and, um, in fact, it was Claire's choice, but we decided for copyright reasons we needed to change the pronouns just to <laughs> live on the safe side. And it's us. Not me. Yeah, that's right. There's two of us. Exactly. Well, we're very excited to be sitting here in Canberra 
uh, here at the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Cyber Security Centre. So thank you so much for having us. You may know that one of the first questions we always ask our podcast guests is, um, Abby, if you were at a dinner party and you were sitting next to somebody who you hadn't met before and they said, oh, Abby, so what do you do? How do you typically answer that question? Yeah, so I say I have this magnificent job working with awesome people in both the private and public sector to provide advice and assistance to every Australian and every Australian entity on cybersecurity so we can be a united, prosperous and secure nation. That is a pretty magnificent um, thing to be able to say and I'm sure gets people pretty interested in this day and age where scamming and cyber attacks are becoming increasingly prevalent. Is there a bit of a story to how you've ended up in this role? Oh, well, it, there's certainly a story, but there's not a plan. So <laughs> tip number one, I started my life, actually, I was born in Singapore in a Red Cross hospital because my father was serving in Vietnam as a member of the Australian Army, which is pretty interesting because, of course, this week it's the anniversary of the 50th anniversary of the withdrawal from Vietnam. And my grandfather was a member of the Royal Air Force from the British Air Force. So serving my nation has always been in my blood, in my family's blood. And as a consequence of having a father who served in the army, but also in the foreign affairs portfolio, we traveled a lot as kids. And I think when you live overseas and you travel a lot overseas, you become even more patriotic and proud of our own country and how we live, the liberties um, and the access to services and the um, multicultural society. And for me, that combination set me on a pathway where the only career I could anticipate was one where I served my country and in particular national security. Right. And I think you actually started your career in the Royal Australian Navy. What made you choose to go maritime? Yeah, that's a really good question. And especially as my father was in the army, I can't say that went down too well. (laughs) Actually, I had an experience when I studied law at the Australian National University and I did Asian studies as well. But I did a unit on um, international law As part of that course, I won't lie, two very handsome naval officers used to turn up in uniform and I was fascinated by the work that they did. And at that time in the 90s, illegal foreign fishing off the north of Australia was a big issue and they were involved in the provision of legal advice about enforcement activities off the north of Australia. And I was just fascinated by the interaction of economics and national security and the maritime domain, and Australia's maritime domain is enormous. We Our search and rescue area is like 11% of the Earth's surface and the complex sort of maritime arrangements um, from a legal, domestic and international perspective just fascinated me. But what I loved most was that operator's interface, that they were actually these officers going out on patrol vessels and were engaging with the people that were actually doing the work. So it really struck a chord with me, that interaction between academic and intellectually sophisticated concepts and difficult concepts, challenging concepts, and then the pragmatic, how you how you bring that together with the day-to-day work that actually has to be done. Wow. And so so you then joined the Navy mm-hmm. um, after university, is that right? I did, yeah. yeah. Wow. And 
you know, when we, we think about a career in the Navy as a woman, you know, I know that there's many more women in the Navy now, but probably when you joined, there probably weren't that many. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I had never really reflected on it, perhaps because I'm a fairly independent and robust character. I actually found the first decade of my career in the Australian Defence Force incredibly rewarding, incredibly rich in terms of experiences. I mean, I I had a a range of jobs, which meant not only was I at sea, but I got to engage in all sorts of different platforms and weapons training and, and different criminal work as well as industrial relations work because that was the nature of legal officers work in the in the navy and i really owe that foundation to the sort of person i am now because such a huge part of work in the australian defense force whether you are a specialized medical officer or lawyer or ship driver relates to training around being a leader and that i think really became the pathway for, for me to move beyond the law and, and into some of the, the other roles. I actually think, to be frank, I notice more being female at the senior end of my career than I do to the junior end of my career. And I have experienced um, sort of stereotyping behaviour more regularly at more senior levels than I, than I did at more junior levels. Are there very few of you still today or is that increasing? There are certainly more women in the Navy. I think, though, the joy of being in the Signals Directorate is actually the Signals Directorate has a rich history in women being very influential in the beginnings of the organisation. So, you know, we have a really strong history here in ASD of women who've made a real difference. It's not a physical environment, uh, which is challenging, which is a bit different when you, some of those other environments which are generally male dominated. And of course, now, almost 40 years later, we have a Director General who is female. And of course, I run the cybersecurity mission as a female, and 50% of our senior executive service are actually female. 40% of people who work in the Australian Signals Directorate are female, and just over 50% of our intake in the last couple of years have also been female. So this notion that women aren't good at tech or don't have roles in STEM has really been disproven since the beginning of ASD's creation. And it's something that we try and leverage constantly. It sounds like uh, this might be one area, and there probably aren't a lot, where Australia could be leading perhaps internationally in terms of having women at the forefront and at the the most senior roles, which is fantastic to hear. Although, interestingly, if you look at our five eye counterparts at the moment, four of the five are female. Does that mean women are natural spies? Uh, I think women are natural listeners. <laughs> um, and that, of course, is the role of Signals Directorate and our five-eye counterparts. Because I'd love to just pause and explain for us as well as our listeners, you know, that ASD, Australian Signals Directorate, and the Cybersecurity Centre is part of that. Mm. You know, so 
layman's terms, would you call it a spying organization? And is its remit purely overseas? Because I've, you know, I've heard of ASIO and other people, other countries have other organizations. That's a great cap- question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of mysterious, isn't it? That people sort of hear the signals agent. Is that someone with a sign that stands on the side of the road? <laughs> now, it's a pretty old fashioned term, which goes back you know, sort of 75 years. But what it essentially means is the Signals Directorate is a foreign intelligence agency. So we collect foreign intelligence, which travels on electronic means. So that's the meaning of signal in the old-fashioned term. Because we're really good at collecting foreign intelligence signals, we are really good at understanding how to to defend our own communication networks, and we like to say from people like us. And so actually, we've had a cybersecurity function for as long as we've had an intelligence function. But in the old days, cybersecurity used to be called InfoSec or CommunicationSec. And now, of course, with the advent of computers and optic fiber, we now call that cybersecurity. Amazing. And if I'm not mistaken, the ASD and the Cyber Security Centre is both protecting, but there's also offensive moves as well. Is yeah, that right? that's right. So we have actually in the Australian Signals Directorate, we like to say three functions, one mission. And so our mission, of course, is in the, to operate in the strategic interests of Australia. So we have a great motto in ASD, which is to reveal their secrets and protect our own. And that, of course, reflects the two sides of the coin, which I spoke about. So on the one hand, poacher, so gatherer of intelligence or foreign intelligence, and on the other hand, protect our own. The third function is our youngest function, actually, when the Intelligence Services Act was amended in 2018. ASD acquired legal function to disrupt cybercrime where that emanates from offshore. So what that means is, for example, during the COVID lockdown, we saw a number of foreign cybercriminal syndicates who were targeting Australians, and the cybercriminals are super clever. They understood how digitally connected Australians were how during lockdown many Australians were moving to digital forms to acquire information about services available, uh, monetary payments that were available. And so the cyber criminals were sending SMSs into Australians' phones. Some of them looked fantastic. Some of them would sit within um, legitimate threads. So they looked as if they were coming from government departments. And then they were enticing Australians to click on links and download malware onto their phones and then take their credential information and then empty out their bank accounts. And so the Signals Directorate ran a countering cybercrime campaign to locate that criminal syndicate and to disrupt it using technological means, which was a fantastic outcome for Australians. And actually, in this case, lots of other people all over the world who are also subject to that cyber criminal syndicate who can thank us, but if they probably don't know we did it, which is a great part of the job as well. Wow, that's fascinating. If you think about individuals and organisations, what advice would you have 
for them to sort of keep themselves safe from yeah. all of this, particularly as it keeps on changing. Yeah, it does. You're right. So actually, when we analyse most of the attacks which impact Australians and Australian networks, the vast majority aren't actually by highly sophisticated means. Actually, the bulk of those attacks could have been prevented if people had really good multi-factor authentication. So that is that means if someone steals your passphrase or somehow acquires your what we would call credentials, if you have multi-factor authentication, so you have a PIN number or a second second form of authenticating your identity, then your account's more likely to be secure. Related to that, having a great passphrase. So if your passphrase is password123, chances are someone is going to guess that pretty quickly. And thirdly, vulnerabilities in software. So these have become increasingly problematic for us as the explosion of apps. So remember when smartphones first came on the market and then suddenly there was an application for just about every function you thought you needed and even ones you didn't realize existed. And so those applications have all become a market. When COVID came along, everyone then had to work from home or remotely. And so software providers did an incredible job of creating more tools for collaboration and remote access really, really quickly. And the problem that we have today is a lot of those applications and software came onto the market with speed in mind rather than really thorough security vetting. And so now we have a whole bunch of applications that have bugs or holes in them. They tend to arise really, really quickly. And so the rule for individuals and most certainly entities is patch regularly. So what that means if you're a person is on your iPhone where it says update available, don't click tell me later, click update now. So do those three things, multi-factor authentication, passphrases and patching, and about 80 to 90% of the attacks would be circumvented. Great advice. It's very good advice. I'm sure for you personally working here, you mentioned, for example, that when you step into your office, no one has a mobile phone in the building. So the day-to-day convenience of mobile phones, is that something that you guys have to sacrifice somewhat? And excuse the phrase, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it depends on your definition of of sacrifice, I suppose. And and I will expose my little story ahead of time. Sometimes getting those texts from the school to say your son's not turned up today. (laughs) Sometimes those texts are better to get at the end of the day, aren't they? And they're actually, it's actually a good realization that life does go on without smart devices beside you. And it's actually, I think, an interesting experiment for people to try to see how much more economy they get into the day and efficiency if you actually take some downtime. So it's not all bad. Yeah, I imagine. Now, granted, as you mentioned, you were raised in a military family and therefore sort of always knew this might serving your country would be something. But it seems to me that there would be a lot of worrying things that you hear about in terms of foreign nations or foreign criminal syndicates who deliberately want to harm Australia or Australia's interests or citizens' interests. How do you manage that when you get home at night, especially if something big has happened and you can't talk about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, for me, it's pretty simple. 
as an operator and all through my career, I've always been exposed to information that some people might find disturbing. But I have huge confidence in the operational arms, certainly of the Australian Signals Directorate, that in the case of intelligence, we are getting it to the places and the customers that need to see it. In the context of cybersecurity, this is where we can see our impact on a daily basis. We have access to top secret intelligence and our job is to declassify that as quickly as possible to get it to entities and to individuals to prevent harm or the lateral movement of malicious actors through networks. So I take great solace in that. I would imagine though that you've probably got some habits that you put in place either during the day or as part of your leadership with your team. Is there anything that comes to mind that sort of helps you with this? Yeah, I'm a great believer in just the quiet space at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. So my mornings start pretty early before the rest of my family get up. And normally when my animals get up, my cat and dog want to go for a walk and have a feed. And I actually start my day with media to find out what are Australians talking about today and how that how might that intersect with my life because quite often we find out about major cyber security inc- incidents in the media as well sometimes that's the first time we hear about it but i think it's really important as a leader to understand particularly if you're talking to ministers or if you're talking to CEOs of big companies that you understand the context in which you're going to engage those people on that day realizing that your issue might not be the first. So I really situate my morning with media and then I like to take a walk and I always, whenever I can, take my children to school because I find that evenings are um, a rush of transacting and lunches and getting ready for the next day and that is my 15 to 20 minutes where it is solely about them And that doesn't make me feel so guilty then when I wander off into the rest of my life and leave my mobile phone outside the office. The same goes for the other end of the day. Um, And sometimes as I sit on the couch and look at the yoga mat that's rolled up in front of the TV, sometimes it can really take some powers of negotiation inside my head to, to get up and unroll the yoga mat. But I do find that sleeping comes easier and the next morning the shoulders feel better. If you just take that me time both at the beginning of the day and the end, and it doesn't have to be long, 10, 15 minutes of mindfulness or stretching or any one of those I think makes an enormous difference to your efficiency and your and your mental health. And are there any things that you do with your team that sort of allows both you and them to get the best out of the day? I think once you become a leader at this level, communication is super key. And it's not just communication of the task, it's communication of the context and passing on that communication as quickly as possible to empower other people to do their work in a way where they understand what all the equities might be or what the sore points might be or whose interests are they going to run over if they do a particular task in a, in a certain way. So communicating is with the team is key. Yeah, and I, and I love that because even though you're in a space that must be, you know, full of high-level security 
areas. Yeah, you've got you. You're clearly very trusting with your team, and that psychological safety that you give by giving them trust must be very empowering for them. Yeah. Well, there's so much work to do. Yeah. <laughs> that we kind of have to. You can't micromanage everything. ASD will only ever be so big. We will never match the number of cyber criminals that are out there. So if you can't get efficiency and scale, we'll never win. I'm curious because, you know, your background with law and Asian studies and then Navy and Maritime Command and even spending time working in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. How much of a learning curve was it when you joined the Cybersecurity Centre in terms of that whole tech that, you know, it's intangible. You can't see these things, whereas a lot of the other things that you were doing were probably a little bit more tangible. How sort of much of a learning curve was that? Well, it was super tricky transition because the first day I started in ASD was the first day of lockdowns, COVID oh, lockdowns. Wow. And so all the normal things that you would do as a leader – when you join a new place, walk around, meet people face-to-face, have those conversations. I couldn't do that. And I had to meet everyone by VTC. So I actually made a little colour chart and I had everyone's photos on it and I would write notes on there for the first few months about who people were, what sort of job they had, what the sort of conversation was, just to remind myself because you don't have those other visual prompts which we you would normally have about where someone sits or what they look like. And then there is the dealing with the technological concepts and dealing with people who are highly introverted, as a lot of people who work in the um, signals intelligence area are. That was probably different to other places I've worked. And of course, you just, you learn as a leader how to work with uh, people to get the most out of those people. And if you want high-performing teams, then you have to meet them where they are. Not only do you have to communicate clearly, but you have to understand what communication works and how you need to adapt your leadership style. So for me, I know you might find this surprising, but I'm a reasonably forceful and robust person. I communicate fairly frankly and directly. Now, the unintended impact of that, that might work work well in other environments, But if you're dealing with largely introverted people who don't feel comfortable speaking up, the unintended consequence of that is those people can feel as if their voice can't be heard or nor do they want to raise their voice. And so they can accept what you're saying without proper, frank dialogue and robust conversation, which is actually my number one most important feature. I love to have, maybe it's the legal background, I think the best ideas come from really robust debate and frank exchange. And so I had to completely change the way that I engage with those people to make them feel safe and give a huge amount of space for them to raise their ideas. I do have to make it explicit that unless someone says otherwise, this is the way we are going to move because we have to make decisions and we have to move forward. But I have to make it super clear that there is a time now for people to speak up and explain their concerns with a proposed course of action. As for technology, I think it, it is a problem if leaders think that technology is something that happens in the ICT space. You cannot be a leader, I don't care, either in the private or public sector and not have your head around technology. It runs the way we live, either professionally 
or personally, and if you don't have a grip on the basic tenets of the internet, what software, hardware, IoT or Internet of Things devices, smart devices, AI, as we've mentioned, coming along, machine learning, you must get a grip data security, you must read yourself into and understand those basic concepts because it is a core competency of any leader today. I think I've read that you've been quoted as saying that, you know, Australia's looking down the barrel of a really significant cyber skills talent shortage. You know, if there are listeners here who are inspired by your story or inspired by the concept of protecting their country's vital infrastructure or whatever it might be, you know, what's your advice to people who had thought up until now, yeah, but I've got no technology expertise. How can I play a useful role? Oh, look, there are so many pathways available for people if they want. So the Signals Director at Education is not one of our functions. There are plenty of other agencies for whom it is. But we do play our part. We have recruits uh, who come into ASD on a variety of different pathways. You go to asd.gov.au and forward slash recruitment and you'll see some of those. We have interns who join partway through their university degrees, graduates who come in after graduate degrees, and many of those come in with skill sets which aren't technological in nature, but we are great at training people. And some of our most effective offensive cyber operators, for example, have had careers as barbers, for example. Wow. Yeah. And one of our state directors, I'm not going to tell you which one, but he runs one of our big state facilities, started in ASD as a forklift driver and is now one of our senior executive service. You mentioned earlier, as you had got to senior roles, that that's when you experienced, if you like, bias a little bit more. How has that played out for you and how much of a challenge is that today? Yeah, I think it is still a very real issue for senior females. We are not past the days where you can sit around a table with senior people and have the same thing said by a male as you've just said and suddenly, you know, we have a quorum. We're not past, you know, the sort of perpetual selection of the same senior males for important roles. We're not past the stereotypical assessments that somehow, you know, some females don't have the statesman-like characteristics or perhaps aren't strategic enough for particular positions. So my own best response to that is always stay focused on your core role and do it excellently. Because if you do your own role excellently, you earn a seat at the table that's when you can start leveraging that for effect elsewhere. Okay, so I, I know that we, we need to wrap up shortly. So maybe I'll ask you, in your role from where you stand, which is a very, very interesting place, if you look at the possible pipeline of changes in technology, what are you most excited about? I'm ex- extremely optimistic about the future of technology and extremely optimistic about artificial intelligence. I know that there's a lot of counter-narrative going on at the moment, but if you look at some of the potential for artificial intelligence just from the perspective, not I'll stay in my lane, cybersecurity lane, not even talk about its potential application for you know medical science and disease prevention or, or treatment. Let's think about cybersecurity. 
and all those software vulnerabilities which we talked about earlier and the potential to use artificial intelligence to firstly diagnose those bugs or those vulnerabilities at speed and scale and then potentially to block malicious actors. How wonderful would that be? I mean, I'd be able to retire um, <laughs> early. No, I wouldn't. There's always plenty of work. <laughs> they're gonna, There's they're always plenty of work. But I'm most excited about, about machine learning and artificial intelligence and its capacity to really change the cyber landscape. Well, that makes me feel a lot better that you are saying that. Well, Abby Bradshaw, thank you so much. It's been a really fantastic conversation. So interesting. If people wanted to find out more about you and ASD, where would they go? Well, they should go to asd.gov.au. And if you're after some of the best cybersecurity advice for the best price, that is free, cyber.gov.au for all of those tips on social media, software, IoT, uh, the Essential Eight are all online. And of course, we run a 24-7 watch floor, 1300 Cyber One. And anyone who wants some cybersecurity advice or thinks they might have been subject to a cybersecurity incident can call that number and someone will call 24-7. Wow, that's great to hear. Fantastic. And of course, unlike our other guests, there's no LinkedIn or social media handles for someone in your position. Is that correct? Not a fan, to be honest. Not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) But you found me, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, thank you so much again. We love what you're doing. (laughs) So thank you for keeping us safe. And thank you for giving us your time today. Oh, thank you so much for coming all the way from sunny Sydney to Canberra to talk. It's great to spend the time with you. Huge fan of the podcast and don't stop us now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I love this conversation so much, didn't you? Absolutely. And I so appreciated how open and frank Abby was, given the nature of her work and intelligence. You know, it was really refreshing. Yeah, she's really approachable, isn't she? Yeah, Yeah, and you can also see her passion for elevating women into leadership positions. You know, she's clearly a real pioneer herself. Absolutely. And can you imagine she had to start a new job with a new organisation the very day COVID lockdowns began? What an unexpected challenge that must have been for her. Yeah, not to mention that Abby then realised she had to really change her style because of the number of deep introverts she was working with. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of that before, but, you know, I guess decoding messages and monitoring cyber activity are the kinds of deep focus solo activities that are really well suited to introverts. That definitely rules me out, that's for sure. Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Or should I say, mission accomplished, Agent 99? (laughs) You should indeed say that. (laughs) Stay tuned for another exciting episode in two weeks' time. And in the meantime, have a great week. Stay cyber safe. Update those passwords and ciao for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. 